Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. One from me and one from former host Tracy V. Wilson. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's November 24th. On this day in 1971, a man known as D.B. Cooper parachuted out of a hijacked plane with a bag of ransom money and was never seen again. So on that day, this man had gone to the airport in Portland, Oregon, and he bought a ticket to fly to Seattle on Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305. He gave his name as Dan Cooper. It's not totally clear how that morphed into D.B. Cooper when he originally used the alias Dan, but he's definitely more known as D.B. Cooper today. He was described as looking like a typical traveler, dressed in a business suit, six feet tall and 175 pounds, and in his mid-40s. This wasn't a full flight. There were only 36 passengers on a Boeing 727 that had a capacity of 94. Shortly after the plane took off, he handed flight attendant Florence Schaffner a note she assumed that he was trying to give her his phone number or something that had happened before with other passengers, so she just tried to ignore it. But he said, Miss, you'd better look at that note. In all caps, the note said, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I want you to sit beside me. So she did. He showed her this briefcase, and she could see six red sticks and a battery and some wires, and then he dictated his terms to her. He wanted $200,000 and used $20 bills. He also wanted two parachutes, one for the front, one for the back, and two backup chutes. And he wanted a fuel truck to be ready to refuel the plane after it landed. He told her, no funny stuff or I'll do the job. So the plane had to circle for a while while these demands could be met, and then it did land. Cooper let all the passengers go, along with Schaffner, and they took off again at 7.46 p.m., He told the pilot he wanted to go to Mexico, but he had some pretty specific conditions for how he wanted them to get there. He wanted the plane to stay below 10,000 feet and to go no faster than 150 miles an hour. The pilot let him know that they could only do that if they stopped and refueled in Reno, and he agreed to that. And then Cooper ordered the one remaining flight attendant who had not been allowed to leave to go into the cockpit, which left him alone in the cabin. At about 8 p.m., the crew noticed a slight shift in their altitude, and then when they landed in Reno, Cooper was gone. Based on when they had noticed that dip, they estimated that he had parachuted out of the plane near the Lewis River north of Portland, Oregon. That area was combed thoroughly, but no sign of him was ever found. The FBI opened an investigation, codenamed Norjack, and on July 8, 2016, they announced they were redirecting the funds to other investigations and that this was no longer an active open case. They called it, quote, one of the longest and most exhaustive investigations in our history. But then in June of 2018, a team of investigators, some of them former FBI, said they had identified D.B. Cooper as a man named Robert Rackstraw. That was based on the text of a purportedly coded letter, although the FBI had cleared Rackstraw back in 1972. He had also previously been the subject of an entire TV special, although he has denied any involvement. 
Strangely, the D.B. Cooper hijacking inspired multiple other copycat hijackers. The 1970s were a time when it was a lot easier to get onto an airplane with weapons. There was virtually no screening in U.S. airports. And airlines also had policies that in cases of hijacking, the crew were basically to do whatever the hijacker asked. So other people also hijacked planes to try to get money and then parachute away. You can learn more about this on the October 3rd, 2011 episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called Who is D.B. Cooper that predates the closing of the case and the renewed focus on Robert Rackstraw. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. And you can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for The Assassination of Three Sisters. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History class, a podcast that really takes to heart the phrase, you learn something new every day. The day was November 24th, 1914. Bessie Blunt was born in Hickory, Virginia. Blunt was a physical therapist and inventor who created tools and devices to help people with physical disabilities. Bessie's parents were George Woodard and Mary Elizabeth Griffin. She went to Diggs Chapel Elementary School, a school that was built after the Civil War for the children of formerly enslaved people and Native Americans. She said that at the school, Black kids learned how to read by reading verses out of the Bible. She was left-handed, but one of her teachers would beat her on her knuckles for writing with her left hand. She figured that, quote, if it was wrong to write with my left hand, then it was wrong to write with my right hand. So she taught herself to write with her teeth and feet. Her family moved to New Jersey, where Bessie studied nursing at Kenny Memorial Hospital and attended Panzer College of Physical Education. After she graduated from Panzer, she studied physical therapy at Union Junior College. Once she became a practicing physical therapist, she worked at veterans' hospitals where she taught soldiers who lost limbs or didn't have use of their limbs new ways to perform tasks. She taught them how to write with their teeth and feet, and she designed inventions that would help the veterans with tasks that could not be compensated for with physical therapy. One of those inventions was a device that helped people who were unable to use their limbs to reach their mouth eat on their own. She spent 10 months developing her first design of this device, and after about four years of further development, she created a working model made of stainless steel. One bite of food at a time was delivered through a tube. A patient would then bite down on the tube, which activated a motor and dispensed that bite of food through the mouthpiece. The device shut down between bites so the patient would have time to chew the food. The chief medical director of the Veterans Administration told her the feeding device was impractical and that hand feeding was preferred. Medical supply companies were not buying into her device, so she donated the patent rights to the French government in 1951. The French government was interested in using the device in military hospitals. Blunt also designed another feeding device, which was made up of a tube attached to a dish that was connected to a brace that a person wore around their neck. In 1953, she appeared on a television show about inventions called The Big Idea. 
She went on to work as a caretaker for the mother-in-law of Theodore Edison, son of inventor Thomas Edison. And she designed more inventions, like a kidney-shaped vomit basin made out of paper mache. The invention wasn't picked up in the U.S., but the Belgian government took interest in it, and the basins are still used in Belgian hospitals today. In 1969, Blunt switched career paths, turning to forensic science. She became a handwriting analyst and published a paper on medical graphology, or the study of handwriting. She detected forged documents for the Vineland Police Department in New Jersey and for police departments in Virginia. She applied to work in the FBI and was turned down, but in 1977, she took an advanced studies course in the document division at Scotland Yard. She's believed to be the first Black American woman to train and work at Scotland Yard. In her later years, Blunt continued to do freelance forensic work, and she authenticated documents for museums. She also worked as a consultant in law enforcement investigations. Blunt died in New Jersey in December of 2009. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Or if you want to get a little more fancy, you can send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow with another episode.